Today in the Marshall Crew of Podcast, we have, I don't know what to call this, two race engineers talking about IMSA and their return to action coming up this Saturday night at Daytona International Speedway. This is my friend Jeff Brown on the other end of the line. Many of you are very familiar to his awesome sounds and thoughts. Been a little while since we've done an episode, Jeff. Thanks for making some time. Oh man, Marshall, it's good to be back. It's uh this is this must be the official official end of COVID-19 because <laughs> we're back talking to each other. So, let's we'll just call that that it's over. It's not happening anymore because we're back together talking about racing. It's official. COVID's okay. over. It's so, over, done. I don't know what to call this. You're the super high quality peerless race engineer. I'm the super low quality race engineer who, as you've heard me say, I'm so good. I now am manned with a keyboard and camera. Um, let's start on the topic, Jeff, uh, brought to us here by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers and our awesome friends at TorontoMotorsports.com and Bell Racing Helmets USA. The difference, the key difference from an engineering standpoint and engineering preparation standpoint as well which is hey in january we went to this very same track cooler time of the year and the goal for every race engineer was to prepare their car for 24 hours of action starting ending hot cold could rain could be humid ambient up and down all kinds of things you frankly have to prepare for everything we're going back here Saturday night. Very narrow band, my friend, right? We're starting 6.05 p.m. Sun's not down, but it's certainly right. getting lower. And we're yep. done at 8.45 when it will certainly be dark. Let's talk about some of the things that you and others would be doing to prepare for this sliver of time at Daytona to optimize a car. Yeah, it, it, a lot of you might think it would be easier because the, the, the band of operation is smaller, but what that actually makes it more difficult because you, you don't need to compromise quite as much as you would in a 24 hour race. And, and so the first thing we know about Daytona is, you know, we say, Oh, it's going to get dark. Mm, It's going to get, the sun's going to go down, but depending, I'm assuming they're going to use the same power, lighting power that they used for the 24 hour race. So it's not super dark, but for sure the track changes. And we, we go through that every year in the 24 hour. Um, the big difference is that we are not going to see sunrise and the track deteriorate at the end of the race. Normally the 24 hour, you see hot kind of conditions at the start of the race, sun on the track into the night we always talk about what we call happy hour, which is really two or three hours, but it's usually that 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. period where all the fastest laps of the race happen when it's cooled way down. Um, and then the sun comes up and the track gets horrible. I mean, it is, it, there's oil and dirt and dust and it's been run on and now it's sun's beating down on it. So this is going to feel for a race engineering and a driver standpoint a lot more like Sebring where you start in probably not the greatest conditions and you finish the track will get better and better and better right up to the checkered flag, just kind of like Sebring does. So from a setup standpoint, you're going to be targeting that 
that cooler conditions, more horsepower because the engines will make more power in the in the cooler conditions. Probably a little bit better racetrack because the track temps will come down. Um, so you're going to be targeting that, which we always have at Daytona, but we have we can't set up for that for the 24 hour race because we'll be junk in the morning when the race finishes. So now we can we could take more of a Sebring type approach to our setup. And you're going to want to be really good that last stint when it's the coolest. So a lot of race engineers will be going back through their notes from the 24 hour and looking at data, tire pressures from their tire pressure monitoring systems, um, downforce levels, uh, gearing, things like that, um, at, and see what they, how they were operating in the cooler conditions during the 24 hour race. I mean, gearing is a simple thing. We, you can't gear for the night. Most cars at night at Daytona run out of, run out of revs because you're, you just have more horsepower. So you kind of, you know, you're geared a little, a little short. Well, now you could gear it perfectly for those conditions because you don't have to go back into the daytime again. So um, good thing is we all have really good data from how we ran at night um, during the 24th. You know, Jeff, looking at the schedule for the event, uh, boy, there's not a ton of time. I mean, there's time for practice, but it's not the same Rolex 24 roar before the 24 type abundance. We do have one night practice on Friday, July 3rd. One hour long, 6.15 to 7.15, so great on IMSA for the timing of that, uh, where it's falling into that sweet spot where the race, you know, the timing where it starts. Saturday, we've got, again, about an hour, 15-plus type practice going on. Uh, Overall, teams are going to have, I would say, enough time to prepare for the race. Let's talk about drivers in the fact that while iRacing has been something that many have done and we've seen some others get out doing some karting, maybe doing some uh, track days in a a proper car somewhere, but if we're talking the majority of the WeatherTech Championship teams across DPI, across GT Le Mans, and then also GTD, uh, this 6.15 p.m. practice session uh this coming friday it's really going to be the first time they've gotten loud and angry behind a steering wheel uh for quite some time how do you as an engineer prepare your team to go practice knowing that boy uh this has been like a doubly long off season between the first race and the second race that's a that's a great point and the the thing here is is that imsa had their testing ban in place so nobody's gone and run the actual weather tech cars um or at least they weren't supposed to and i think everybody complies pretty well but some of the drivers some of the pro drivers have been doing a lot of coaching um in other types of cars and the 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 top pros probably i mean they don't need a lot of practice so i would say in the you know, the GTD class specifically, where you have uh, silver and bronze rated drivers, you're going to, those teams are going to want to give their, 
those drivers the most amount of practice because they're probably they need laps to get back into the swing of things more than a pro a pro can pick it up three laps boom he's back to where he normally normally was um but the so now you're going to have to as a gtd team you're going to want to have your silver driver or bronze driver do a lot of that running but at the same time you're going to want to use that first practice when it's the end of end of race conditions to have your pro guy in there to to help set it up so it's going to be a it's going to be a big balancing act it'll be different each each team how they choose to do that and how much they need their their am guys some of these some of these silver guys have been out doing historic racing i know some of them have been doing for a challenge practice um they have other non-sim vehicles real vehicles that they've been running but um it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see how they how they play it because it's not it's not straightforward it's not just take your daytona setup and 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 go run it's one of the other primary things that jumps out, Jeff, in terms of the race engineering and prep is we know that simulation, the engineering tool, not the driving sim, but actual simulation, mm-hmm. boy, that's a really powerful thing for looking at how to use simulation to try and arrive at the best starting setup. Is it as simple as going back and looking at that 6.05 p.m. to 8.45 p.m. stretch Saturday night during January's Rolex 24 and trying to model off of, I guess, the ambient, uh, tire pressures, et cetera, et cetera. Curious where you'd focus your approach in trying to do the best pre-race, I'm sorry, pre-practice sim efforts Mm -hmm. as most major teams are doing here going to this weather tech 240 event where do you start to look for the best info to use in that sim it's the good thing is is that we all the teams will have some good data from that time frame that you just mentioned and so the other thing is every every race engineer finishes every race probably every practice going oh i wish i would have tried this or i wish i would have had time to try that and everybody goes back after every event every race and this is holds true for the 24 hour and writes down all the things that they want to try next time they get go back to daytona because they want to make the car better and normally we have to wait 12 months to come back and try all those things and so much changes maybe the tire maybe you learn more about your car well here a very unique thing we have a race we have three months off and the very next race is at exactly the same racetrack so we can immediately go and try some of the things that were on our list what the simulation does either the driver in the loop simulation that a lot of teams have or the laptop simulation the actual lap simulation run just inside of a computer is allows the engineers to run a bunch of those before we even get back to the racetrack. So they have their list of 10 things they wish they wanted to try. They'll run those in the simulation. They may even have the drivers come to the driver in the loop simulator and they'll actually do practice sessions, kind of like a virtual practice session. And they'll run through all of those setup changes that they would have wished they would have done back in January. 
and pick out maybe two or three that seem like they have really good possibilities of, of helping. And so they've narrowed down their 10 items down to two that they want to try. And they can quickly deploy those in that practice session um, coming up here next week. And and they've you, you maybe don't have the perfect setup, but you've eliminated five or six things that probably aren't going to work that you might have wasted time trying in the real world um, at the racetrack. So this is a pretty unique thing uh, to be able to go right back to a track, having run there, run a big simulation, and then go right back to the same racetrack. So it's going to be an advantage to teams with simulation, but on the same token, um, the teams that maybe don't have as strong a simulation still have their notes on what they wanted to try, and they can do that you know, right away in that first session. You know, we have some fun questions sent in by our listeners, Jeff, and we're going to make a point to do more of these. I don't know if we're going to do them before every IMSA race, but we're going to do our best to just <laughs> keep doing some fun and interesting things here in the engineering side. And I know awesome. that we do a lot of stuff with uh, the inside the sports car paddock and opening with the, uh, the Jeff and MP segment. I don't know. We might just, do these as solo standalone things, my friend, because I enjoy them and I don't want to have to wait to necessarily package the rest of the show with them. So let's uh, let, let's break conventions here. You know, we, we have some more technical questions we're going to get to in a moment, but I want to get to some that aren't too technical, but they, they pluck at my heartstrings. Alex Eichmiller asks, how much of Jeff's special coffee uh, will teams need to consume at the two-hour and 40-minute Daytona race versus Rolex 24. Our good pal, Nick Vance. Jeff, let's talk coffee. How did you get into it? And why is your coffee so darn good? Says uh, we'll be placing another order soon. Nick uh, mentions he is from New York. Um, and Ryan Terpstra, our, our super good pal. Jeff, how's the coffee business going? Wonder if the MP podcast can generate more orders. Um than uh, a certain blunder-laden show where <laughs> folks have dinner. I don't know about coffee with friends, but uh, dinner with racers and friends and such. All kidding aside, tell us about uh, the freaking Jeff Brown coffee empire when oh, you're buying yeah. Starbucks and putting your name on it. And uh, tell folks about some new so uh, some new software skills you've gained. Oh yeah, well, it's um, you know, it, it's I'm always up for a challenge and trying to get better and learn things. So, combining the coffee roasting with racing and learning things, we uh, I got into how to build a website. Um, I'm terrible at it, but I have a website. It's actually up and running, MesaVistaCoffee.com, and um, it was fun to learn how to how to do a website and um you know it's it's a challenge uh people can tell me what i can do better because there's a lot of things i can do better but uh it's fun to get that going and the roasting coffee thing is um it's actually pretty fun it's um i'm not going to quit my day job I, uh, I of course engineering style did the spreadsheets with the costs and the time invested and the income generated and it became obvious that um um, people will pay me better to race engineer cars than they will pay me to <laughs> roast coffee. So 
but uh it's 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 a lot of fun um yeah i'm going and and of course i apply that i i've built a somebody asked about what makes it better than other people's coffee i think the cool thing about what i like to do is it's super fresh in that when somebody places an order I roast just that order. A lot of big roasters, they roast 25, 35, 50 pounds at one time and then bag it, sits on the shelf for a couple of weeks or a week, and then they sell it off. I get an order. I go out and I roast that one pound in my coffee roaster, one pound individually roasted. And it usually goes out either that next morning or two mornings if I can't roast it right away. But it goes out the day I roast it. And so it's super duper fresh. People really love that. And then, and then of course, I went crazy and I built a special engineered, designed, developed, prototyped, tested, and now it's in fully operation, a machine to clean the coffee. If you've ever had coffee before, you get it out of a bag and there's a lot of that kind of like husks or shells, they call it chaff, that kind of falls off the outside of the bean. Yep. Doesn't. It's no good for when you roast it or grind it. It just doesn't taste good. Well, I've got this special machine that I built that will super clean that. And when you get my coffee, it's got none of that stuff on there. I don't know if it's – it was fun building the machine. Lots of fans <laughs> and aerodynamics involved and columns of air and inches of mercury and trying to figure out how to get it to clean it right. But uh, it works really good now. So just – it's just an excuse to engineer something. I had to do something. So we need more boost. Business. We need more yep. boost. More boost. All right, this coffee's heavy. We need more boost. So it, yep. would I be correct in saying that dear listeners would uh, be wise to visit MesaVistaCoffee.com? Would that be That's the URL? It. That's it. MesaVistaCoffee.com. And um, so the way I do it is I roast when I'm home, obviously. When I'm away racing, I can't. So I'm actually leaving tomorrow morning for a test um, and some racing coming up. So, But on the website, it shows when we're roasting, but anybody can order any time. And I roast it immediately when I get uh, when I get back home. But uh, right now, um, I'm, I'm going to be gone for 10 days or so, but um, I'll be roasting back again in in july but you can order anytime it, it'll it i'll ship it out fresh immediately when i get back and get a chance to roast when you get serious about this jeff you will right. build some form of robotic system where an order comes in the robot takes whatever amount of weight worth of coffee that the order has dictated dump that into the chaff separator machine extract that roast it take that out bag it dial ups or whomever and have them pick it up and have the little right. robot actually wheel out and meet the uh the delivery person and hand it to him so uh yeah you sound like you you maybe are trying to describe what i talked to my wife about being <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love it. All right, yeah. let's uh, let, let's try and avoid robots taking over the Brown household in Texas as a whole, okay. falling to robots. Um, just a nice note here, by the way, from Jacob Bain. No questions. Just happy that fine Mr. Brown is coming back to the show. Um, oh, very nice. Very nice. Let's cover this one uh, from our pal Grant Stouter. He says, has IMSA specified any specific? Ooh, good. I love that. Specified any specific 
cleaning protocols during driver changes. I know this was discussed previously on the show, but as IMSA provided specific expectations, as I know COVID is uh, likely transmitted through, or isn't likely transmitted through sweat. I haven't heard anything on that front of it being carried through. Grant, Jeff, have you heard that being formalized? Nope, nope. They're, they're going to be very specific that drivers um, and crew members must wear masks. Um, if, if, if anybody's watched any of the NASCAR races, obviously IMSA is owned by NASCAR, and they have a very pretty highly refined protocols um for everything that they're going to do um that's that's been refined at the nascar races and and imso will be adopting those pretty much um word for word and it works it works really well um masks have to be on even on drivers until their balaclava goes on and the helmet goes on crew members the same way um in imso races all the crew members have to wear helmets and if they during during the races if they take those off um, the mask has to go on. Um, but during driver changes, no, because the drivers, each driver in and out will have a balaclava and his helmet on. So, um, nothing, nothing particular there. And, and obviously they're, uh, have suits and, and gloves on. So contact, um, infection is possibility or risk is low. I, I assume so, uh, but all sorts of really highly specialized, um, ways even to get into the track you're going to have um questionnaires with um that you have to fill out as far as your your health over the last week there'll be temperature checks you'll you'll be able to get in the track your hard card isn't good enough to get into the track anymore you're gonna have to have your hard card and then you'll have a qr code that will be texted to your phone the night before you enter the track within 24 hours yeah 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 so it's uh because IMSA is restricting the number of, of people that can come to the track. Normally, if you have a hard card for that team, you're allowed in. But here they're restricting the, the number, and each team has to list a roster of the people that they are uh, designating as essential for that weekend. And, and then you'll get that QR code and into the track, and there's going to be – uh, social distancing at the garages. There'll be a garage space between every every car. Um, there's going to be uh, virtual drivers meetings where it'll be like a big Zoom meeting where you'll go to the drivers meeting and team managers meeting and things like that. So uh, IMSA and NASCAR are taking super good precautions, and um, I think everybody's you know nobody's too. Uh, disappointed or mad about it uh we'll pretty much at this stage do almost anything that's required to be able to go racing one item or two to throw in grant that i suggested to imsa was not acted upon 55 gallon disinfectant dunk tank right your driver who's about to get in gotta you know you have to use your helmet but keep the put the balaclava on you know, kind of like you're dunking yourself, like you're being baptized, frankly, but, right. the, you know, kind of hold dunk your nose, down. pinch your nose, close your eyes, dunk yourself down and, you know, whatever really nasty medical grade disinfectant. And then the driver coming out of the car, same thing, just straight in. But one of the uh, the non-stupid things to share here, Grant, is IMSA has placed, I think, just about the most restrictive personnel headcount per entry of 15, a maximum of 15 they have stripped 
They've gone one step farther than or further than IMSA, uh, IndyCar, I should say. IMSA has allowed 20, and they've made no uh, real uh, guidelines on who or what that 20 can be comprised of. Uh, so if you want to bring your girlfriend, you want to bring your dad, your mom, whatever, as long as they fit within that 20, it's pretty open on the IndyCar side. Okay. IMSA has done been very direct in saying no. Uh, unless they are driving it, engineering it, or putting tires on and off or putting fuel in it kind of thing. Uh, no no one else is allowed. They're going to uh, give a little bit of a, a nod to a PR rep uh, for uh, major manufacturers and teams and such, but really that's about the only non-technical, non-driving, non-ownership type permission allowed. One of the things, though, that's been, I guess you could say, stripped from this is often you'll have one person, Jeff, as you well know, uh, go over the wall to act as a driver helper uh, mm-hmm. to extract the one coming out possibly or more likely to assist the one getting in to get buckled in and connected. That role is not something that IMSA is allowing. So that's an adjustment right there where the drivers will have to fend for themselves and uh, this is something where I'm sure every team has spent time in their shop over the last couple of days or last week or however long preparing for that with their drivers. So uh, yeah. Some, some of the, yeah, some of the teams, um, uh, especially a lot of the GTLM teams, that's their normal procedure. Yep. So it'll be an advantage for some of those guys. Um and it's going to be a struggle for the prototypes are hard. That's really hard to do. And so it's, that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. The other thing about it that I think is interesting is IMSA realizing the, the amount of engineering, especially in the DPI class and GTLM class that's, that's involved with a lot of manufacturers is they're actually providing a higher speed, internet connection for all the teams and encouraging some of the performance engineers, maybe some people that normally come to the track to do post practice session simulation or run strategy simulations or do data analysis between sessions. They're encouraging those people to stay at home in their offices and receive the data over this high speed internet um, connection that the teams will have receive the data from the track, do the analysis, Skype in or Zoom in with the other engineers and drivers during a debrief, and then send back the analysis results to the team before the session. So as if they were there in the engineering office, but they can remain remote, limiting their exposure and also allowing teams to use their 15 personnel for over-the-wall people and things like that. Awesome. Let's get to a couple of technical questions here, Jeff, and then say farewell. We I need to come up with a name for the show. I don't know what it is. Um, <laughs> smart engineer, dumb engineer. Today in the Marshall Brewer podcast. Um, let's go to our pal Michael Bregic, who says, Jeff, when you're setting up the cars for Daytona, do you uh, take into account the difference between, say, the flat middle section, uh, the infield, and the high banking in those long corners curious about whether you put in work on the engineering side to try and excel in the transition 
either from the flat infield up onto the banking, coming off the banking, going through, say, the bus stop or turn. Uh, when you come around to turn one, uh, I was also curious about splitters and ride heights uh, in this specific dynamic of trying to ace your ride height and then also ace the transitions. Yeah, it's Daytona is unique in that lap time for sure there comes on the straightaways. I mean, that's the easiest way to gain the lap time. And so you want to trim out as much as you can to gain time on those straightaways. Also, so the race this is going to be a sprint race. I mean, I say that the 24 hours is a sprint race too. We're going to get straight down to it. You're going to want to really look at straightaway speed. You're going to, the race ends at the end of a long straightaway. You're going to want to optimize that. The infield, not nearly as important, um, but still you know, critical and getting off of turn six is important. Getting through the bus stop is really important. Those are the most important turns for sure. So everybody will be optimizing for those things. Um, and the transitions are again, whatever you need to give up early to get onto those two long straightaways as quick as possible, as good as possible, as early to throttle as possible will be the, will be the focus. And we also have, some ride height, if we're talking rules and regulations, um, it's also a little bit of something there to consider quite often. So granted, knowing that the curbing, especially at the bus stop, is one that can tear up splitters pretty easily, usually don't find teams that I can think of trying to you know, run one millimeter off the ground. Uh, if given, you know, of course, if we're thinking maximum performance and such, uh, from a cornering standpoint, sure, but also lower tends to be something that is accelerating more air beneath the splitter and such and creating more underbody downforce, which again, I don't know if that's exactly what you want since the, uh, straights are where you're making the majority of your lap time. But I mean, there is certainly something to consider here, but I know, uh, without uh, a doubt, Michael, that there are many, many, many team owners, team managers, race engineers, if not all of them, when we're talking the Rolex 24, and I would imagine even this WeatherTech 240, giving one basic instruction, do not attack the curbs and risk destroying the splitter because whatever infinitesimal amount of time we're going to gain on that lap we are certainly going to give it all up having to do significant changes at a unscheduled pit stop because the front of the car is no longer there. Exactly. And, and the outlap is really important too at Daytona to, to watch the curbs. If people watch that, watch the, the new tire outlap in the curbs in the bus stop and you got to be careful. I mean, tire, tire damage is still a, is still a concern and everybody will be more aggressive. It's not a 24 hour race here anymore. You're going to be aggressive on tire pressures. You're going to be aggressive on cambers. You're going to be aggressive on ride heights because you don't have to make the car last 24 hours. But again, you can't, you can easily damage it the first time through the bus stop curbs. Those things are, as you said, Marshall, they're tire and car eaters. Let's go to one or more here. And we happen to cover some of these. Steve Grinstead, we got into some of yours. Josh Ridgen, Kevin Frederico, uh, just in our opening uh, banter about the engineering aspects and such. 
Uh, let's see, where else can we go here that might uh, might be fun? Huh. Oh, well, okay. Uh, I think Josh, our pal Joshua Ponce might actually end up being the closing question. I think I see one other coffee one I might have missed, but uh, <laughs> MesaVistaCoffee.com, go there and get it because you're going to stay awake and you're going to support our good friend Jeff Brown, who has he revealed making trillions from right. roasting coffee. Uh, he's calling me from the uh, the Brown family uh, Lear G5 right now, so he's currently flying somewhere in the stratosphere. Um, right, right. Josh says, Jeff, great to have you back on the show. Says aerodynamics question for you. Being that it is summer, and when the cars hit the track at Daytona, what challenges or differences will teams face with air density being thicker potentially than it was during the Rolex 24? Uh, I would say possibly thinner again, depending on uh, heat, uh, what we might expect here uh, on Friday and Saturday. But talk maybe, Jeff, about the ambient barometric, etc. The pretty big difference, if not maybe the biggest difference overall from setup, sim, everything that came out of January Daytona data-wise and how that pesky environment is actually the giant variable you have to tune for uh, to carry over data and set up information and then also tune once you hit the track. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I would expect to have lower air density with the higher heat, which takes downforce away, takes horsepower away, but takes drag away as well. So you're one we talked about simulation in uh, earlier. Um, one of the things you can do in a simulator, which is pretty cool, is you can instantly change the atmospheric conditions you're running and change the air density and tune your gears maybe right for that, tune your ride heights for less air density because you're going to have less downforce. So you can probably lower the car when the air density goes up, I mean, goes down. So the big teams will have dialed all of that stuff in pretty well, but we don't know exactly what you're going to get when we unload. And Florida being Florida in the summer, you could have a pop-up rain shower in three o'clock. At four o'clock, five o'clock. Like, I'm looking you know, here, and it's calling for a low of 75 and a high of 93 on Friday, with potential of thunderstorms. And then on Saturday, yeah. low of 75, high of 89, with the same threat of thunderstorms. So, typical, yeah, absolutely right. typical Florida weather. But uh, granted, I was not in Daytona in January, but I do not seem to recall 93 <laughs> degrees being part of uh, what took place. Well, all I know, all I remember is it was hard to type with my big jacket and my gloves on in the scoring stand <laughs> in January. I don't think I'm going to need those at Daytona this uh, next week. It's you know, and then humidity factors in there too. That changes the air density, so it changes the horsepower. Um, it's going to be some unknowns, you know. I, I I used to like when we ran the Grand Am cars on the Fourth of July weekend at Daytona for that 250. Um, Brumos 250. Yep. Yeah, the Brumos 250. That was that was um, that was always fun, and so this is going to be kind of like kind of have that same aura and vibe. But I don't think anybody, you know, old old time guys, you know, probably it's probably not going to help much if you did those races in the past and uh, things have changed so much now. But uh, 
boy, atmospheric conditions are something you need to be able to adjust on the fly. You, you can't predict what it's going to be. So it's super important. That was a great question. And the best teams will have run simulations for various conditions and know exactly what the change when they uh, unload for that first practice. Final component to this topic, Jeff, and then we'll say farewell, tires. So when I am engineering, whatever it is that I'm engineering, and I know that, A, I've been here before recently, I've got some data, I've got a setup, a couple setup things to look at that I might work from, I am absolutely diving straight into barometrics, ambient expectations, etc., to try and get a really good starting point for tire pressures, knowing that not only are we trying to optimize tire pressures, but also that that influences ride height, which influences downforce and influences blah, 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 blah. Tell folks about how a great company like Michelin will not just leave you and every other race engineer in the various classes prone to show up and use their tires and figure it all out on your own. Share with folks, I don't know if we've ever really gotten into this before in any of the other uh, shows we've done about, we know that chassis suppliers can provide some pretty good information on a suggested starting point for a setup and engine builders can give Mm -hmm. some great info on power curves and this, and you know, you can get a lot of information from a lot of folks involved with your vehicle to really get you in the right zone to start. Tell folks about what a a really sharp company like Michelin does in that regard. Uh, Michelin gives, uh, they'll give the team some really good data so a lot of it is directly inputable, if that's a word, into their simulation programs. Um, things called Pajeka curves and is basically giant, really complex looking formulas that describe the tire and its grip characteristics based on normal load, lateral load, temperature, camber, uh, rotational speeds, things like that. And that information will go right into the simulation model to actually produce um, a model of the tire component of the overall model of the car. So teams will be using that. um, And they've had that, that really wouldn't have changed since the 24 hour. What they'll, the big thing the, the race engineer will do directly at the track. So teams will get a lot more aggressive. The race engineers will, will go more camber, lower tire pressures, all those things will make grip and they can be more aggressive in a sprint race like this because they don't have so many varying conditions. So the, the trick will be you, you're still in danger of losing a tire, of having a flat and your race is over in a, in a two hour and 40 minute race, flat tire pit stop. You're, you're done. As long as you don't even lose the car, which would be, you know, obviously the worst thing. So you'll see um, cambers, pressures be pushed right to the limit. And because uh, it's just, it's just purely, purely grip. And so it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, watch who's, who's the most aggressive. And um, it's all about, it's all going to be about grip. The track's going to be slippery, hot, slippery, humid. It's going to make it even more slippery. So it'll be a search for grip, and that's that's where you need to get aggressive with the tire. The Michelin engineers will be jumping up and down in each pit lane with the race engineers. Oh, no, you got to raise the pressure and take some camber out. It's always kind of a, 
a fun battle between the engineers <laughs> who don't want the tire to blow, you know, the Michelin engineers and the race engineer who wants to go faster and they are they're all struggling. And then Michelin being Michelin, they're, you know, they want to win. And, and fortunately here they, or maybe unfortunately, they don't have any direct competition, but finally, most of the Michelin engineers I've worked with are like, yeah, okay, yeah, just be careful, but but go ahead, but be careful. Wow. So it's always fun. I love it. Jeff Brown, you are a gem. I, I've, granted, we haven't had any real racing to dive into here, but regardless, we're going to make sure that we do more of these because I know folks love hearing uh, your insights and the ability to throw in questions and get smarter. So, uh, like the, like good cop, bad cop, good engineer, bad engineer. I think that <laughs> might be the name of the show here. So oh, uh, you sell yourself short, Marshall. Uh, you sell yourself short. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a great engineer. I'm talking to a <laughs> microphone for a living here, buddy. Um, I am Marshall Pruitt. That is the incomparable Jeff Brown. I want to say thank you again to y'all for great questions. And this is just kind of spur of the moment. So whenever we do the next one, we'll make sure to give you a little bit more of a uh, heads up. I want to say thank you as always. Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets USA. We'll speak to you soon.